Cowden Hall Band, thank you very much. Y'all are outstanding, and I really appreciate you leading us in worship this morning. And uh, I do want to say a word of obvious gratitude to, uh, to Dr. Dockery for asking me to, uh, uh, to speak on this passage. And uh, I am just, uh, it is an honor and a privilege and uh, one that I don't deserve. So thank you very much for uh, entrusting this, this time uh, to me. If you were uh, here Tuesday, you heard uh, Dr. Carter mention that one of the values of preaching expositorily is you deal with passages that you cannot cherry pick, you have to deal with some hard things. Well, let me assure you, if I was going to choose my own sermon, it would not be one on circumcision. So, the, uh, but all kidding aside, there is great value in this, in this passage for us. And I'm also going to say, um, for those of you who are working through Greek, struggling with Greek, uh, this is a passage that you really need to know Greek to really understand what Paul is saying here. So uh, just for, for you New Testament Greek professors, just to know that I am, I'm affirming what you're doing very strongly. So um, you can pay me by taking me to Whataburger later. Um, in all seriousness, there is, uh, Paul is going to deal with something that we also deal with Today, and it's been this way since, uh, since the birth of the church, since the beginning of the Christian faith. And that is that wherever the, the gospel is, within that culture, there are saboteurs who want to undermine and destroy the faith. And what Paul, we deal with this today, uh, if the, the gospel is not necessarily uh, the good news to a lot of our culture because it requires repentance as well as faith. It requires emptying yourself. It requires surrendering your life to Christ. And many don't want to do this, and so they will seek to alter the gospel. Paul faced this, and he uh, issues a, a, a very strong uh, encouragement to the Philippians to watch for this. And so uh, I have titled this sermon, uh, Rejoice in the Lord and Watch Out. He is, wherever he has gone, he has been followed by a group of people frequently who will come in and seek to undermine the gospel by teaching people that, well, yeah, Paul, Paul did you right in helping you understand faith in Christ, but you also need to be circumcised to be part of and come into the, the covenant community of the people of God. And uh, in doing so, they would end up wrecking the faith of the church. And so he is aware that with this church, whom he holds very dear, uh, he is going to issue a warning to them and know that uh, it's very possible. He's warned them before, but he's going to mention it again that this is a possibility. So... He begins, in addition, uh, for the rest of the things, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. When you see, then he's going to make a quick turnabout about watch out, and it looks like, oh, he's saying rejoice in the Lord, be happy, and then watch out. Actually, these things are too re very closely related. And so he's giving us instruction for those who want to sabotage the faith. How do we deal with this? He's giving us two commands and one reality. Command number one. Rejoice in the Lord. With this, he is picking up something he said earlier in uh, verses 17 and 18, but even as I am uh, poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, 
I am glad and rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you also should rejoice, uh, be glad and rejoice with me. Uh, he picks this idea up also in uh, chapter 1, verse 18, when those people are seeking to, uh, with false motives, proclaim the gospel to somehow get at Paul. He says, in the midst of my suffering, in the midst of the opposition, I rejoice because the gospel is being preached anyway. And so the first command here is to rejoice in the Lord. So to rejoice in the Lord, really, what is he saying here? Number one, there's two things to this. Number one, the Lord Jesus Christ needs to be the object of our joy. We need to be consumed with how remarkable our Savior is. We need to be overwhelmed with the greatness and the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to say, uh, mention a little bit more about this in the few verses later, but um, it also means that we are going to rejoice in what he has done for us, what he has accomplished for us and our salvation. The fact that we are now united to Christ and share in all the blessings of sonship that he has. This is remarkable. We need to rejoice. And the Lord Jesus Christ needs to be the object of our joy the object of our worship, the object of our praise, it needs to be verbalized, needs to be sung, it needs to be spoken. Is Paul in any way uh, having a Pollyanna attitude of, well, if we rejoice, we can ignore the hardships that are around us? Absolutely not. It is rejoicing in Christ that allows us to see the reality of the hardships that we face. It doesn't ignore it, it embraces it. We have been called... To, to follow Christ and live counterculturally, that is going to bring us pain and affliction and suffering. We're not going to be in a culture that's going to pat us on the back for how well we follow Christ. We're going to be attacked. Scripture is very clear on if they did it to the Lord, Jesus, they're going to do it to us. So for this, we can count it all joy, and it's actually in the midst of the, of the difficulties, in the midst of the struggles, rejoicing in Christ is going to allow us to, to remember and recognize that in the midst of our pain, in the midst of the affliction, in the midst of the suffering, God is mightily at work bringing about what he wants to be brought about in us and in the community of, of God. God knows what it's like. The Lord Jesus Christ certainly knows what it's like to suffer. You want to bring any suffering. He was tempted at all points like we are, yet without sin. He's a faithful high priest who's endured everything we endured. If you want to bring anything to Jesus and ask Jesus, do you know how it feels to be blasphemed, slandered? Oh, yeah, he does. Do you know what it's like to have your best friend stab you in the back? Oh, yes, he does. Do you know what it's like for your family to think you're, you're a lunatic? Oh, yeah, he knows exactly what that's like. Do you know what it's like to be unjustly accused and to be mistreated? Yes, he knows exactly what that's like. And he is at work in the midst of our difficulties, in the midst of our, of our struggles, to accomplish all the things he wishes to accomplish. So the first thing for us to do as we face those who want to sabotage our faith is rejoice in the Lord, be consumed with his majesty, with his greatness, with his love, be consumed with it. He goes on to say, now to write to you again about this is no trouble for me and is a safeguard to you. He's obviously now going to turn attention to 
uh, the particular issue that he sees that could be a threat to them. And as he has told them before, he's going to tell them again, I've warned you, I've told you about this. This is not burdensome for me. It is really safe for you and in your best interest that I remind you of these things. So he reminds them with command number two. Watch out, watch out, watch out. And here's where you need to, uh, if you see this in Greek, you can see that the, th the three things that he says watch out for, the three ways that he refers to these enemies, they all start with, with kappa. Watch out for the kunos, watch out for the, the kakus agatas, watch out for the katatome. Watch out for the dogs. And it's interesting, the three terms he's going to give here, he's actually going to to turn the tables on the Judaizers who are potentially going to come and try to damage the Philippians as they have done to so many other churches. Watch out for the dogs. Now for us, uh, dogs are not something, uh, is not a term of derision really because these are our house pets. Uh, this is one of the, the great things of the gospel is that God has redeemed dogs and now dogs are part of the family and cats, eh, not so much, but dogs definitely. Um, but in the first century, uh, dogs were not viewed warmly. They, they were viewed as something uh, unclean. They were scavengers. Uh, they would eat anything. And so the uncleanness of the dogs meant that the, the, their unholiness of them became then a term of derision to look at uh, uh, the Jews used towards Gentiles to say, these people are unholy, they're unclean, they're outside the covenant community. Now Paul turns the tables. It's not the Gentiles who are the dogs. It's not the Gentiles who are the unclean and the unholy who are outside the covenant community. It's the Judaizers. It's those people who are coming to sabotage your faith. They are the dogs. Watch out for them. Second, he says, watch out for the evil workers. These are people who no doubt think they are really doing good. They're doing the law. They're doing good works of the law. And Paul says, they are not. Don't let them uh, fool you with a, a slick smile and a nice sounding speech. Don't let them fool you with their rhetoric. They are workers of evil. Now go back with me, if you would, to uh, Galatians. Galatians chapter one. Notice what he says, uh, starting in verse six. I'm amazed that you are so quickly turning away from, from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what you have, we have preached to you, a curse beyond him. As we have said before, and I say now again, if anyone uh, preaching to you uh, is preaching to you another gospel contrary to what you received, a curse beyond him. So one of the things that these people are doing by by teaching the Gentiles that they need to be circumcised in order to come into the covenant community is also going to bring with it the requirement of observing the law and the requirements of the law. And it's going to bring about a works righteousness or a works-oriented salvation or a faith plus works, if you will. He says, these are, these are not workers of good. These are workers of evil because they're preaching to you another gospel, not the real one. Uh, chapter 3. You foolish Galatians, who has cast a spell on you, before whose eyes uh, Jesus was, uh, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly uh, portrayed as crucified? I only want to learn this from you. Did you receive the Spirit by 
the works of the law or by the hearing with faith? Are you so foolish after beginning by the Spirit that you are now finishing by the flesh? Did you experience so much for nothing? In fact, it was for nothing. So then does God give you the Spirit and work miracles among you by your doing the works of the law? Or is it by believing what you heard, just like Abraham who believed God, it was credited to him for righteousness? How did you receive the Spirit? These people are going to undermine you. You receive the Spirit by faith, not by works of the law. And they're going to turn you against this. Verse 10. All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse because it is written, everyone who does not do everything according to the, the book of the law is cursed. These people are going to, they're not, they're not out for your best interest. They are out for their own best interest. They're going to sabotage you and they're going to sell you down the river because you are then going to be brought under the curse of the law. These are not innocent bystander people who just think they're being sincere. They are undermining your faith. These are workers of evil. Watch out for them. They are also, he refers to them as watch out for the mutilation. They are going to put great emphasis on the need for these Gentiles to be circumcised. Paul won't even call them the circumcision. He will call them the mutilation. Because what they are going to teach, what they are going to, to try to do, and this is a play on words with, uh, with the, the word for circumcision, which is paratome. And he's telling them to watch out for the katatome. So what they are essentially doing is requiring something that, let me, let's again go back to uh, Galatians this time in chapter, uh, chapter 5. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Take note, I, Paul, am telling you that if you get yourself circumcised, Christ will not benefit you at all. Again, I testify to every man who gets himself circumcised that he is obligated to do the entire law. You who are trying to be justified by the law are alienated from Christ. You have fallen from grace. Uh, and on he goes to say that this circumcision means absolutely nothing. What they are then doing, what he is telling them is, watch out for them because they're going to bring you back under a yoke of slavery. This is going to be a rejection of Christ, a rejection of the righteousness found in Christ. And furthermore, what they are doing, they're not doing anything good. They are just mutilating the flesh. This is all they're doing. And by the way, mutilating the flesh, cutting the flesh is a violation of the law. So Paul turns the tables with them with all three of these terms. They're the ones who are outside the covenant. They are no longer part of the covenant people of God. They are outside it. God has established a new covenant in Christ, and they are now outside of it, finding themselves working contrary to it, because this is another gospel. So watch out. Those who are trying to sabotage the faith, we need to watch out. We need to rejoice in the Lord. We need to watch out. And then he tells us of the reality. And again, your, your knowledge of Greek will help you quite a bit here. Because the word we, uh, whom I is in the emphatic position. For we are the circumcision. Not they. We are the circumcision. Uh, and who is, who is we? 
Well, we's going to obviously include Paul. He's just told us about, uh, in the previous passage, about uh, Timothy and Epaphroditus. So Paul is Jewish. Timothy is half Jewish. Epaphroditus is Gentile. The majority of the believers in the Philippian church are Gentiles, and there are likely some Jewish converts there as well. Those who are in Christ, those who have placed faith in Christ, these are the circumcision. These are the ones who are in the covenant community of God in the new covenant and stand under the covenant blessings of God. Now, you can see all the way back a, a spiritual perspective on the idea of circumcision. Uh, let me take you back to Deuteronomy chapter 10, um, beginning in verse 15. Yet the Lord had his heart set on your fathers and loved, one, and loved them. He chose their descendants after them uh, he, chose, he chose you out of all the peoples as it is today. Therefore, circumcise your hearts and don't be stiff-necked any longer. In uh, chapter 30, uh, picking up in verse 5, the Lord your God will bring you into the land your, uh, your fathers possessed and you will take possession of it. He will cause you to prosper and multiply you uh, more than he did your fathers. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart in the hearts of your descendants, and you will love him with all of your heart, with all of your soul, so that you may live. Uh, we see Paul picking this very idea up in Romans uh, chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart by the Spirit, not the letter. Those who are in Christ are in the covenant community of God. It is God who has then worked, not in the flesh, but by the Spirit, inwardly in the heart to circumcise the heart and remove the hardness and give us a, a lie, responsive heart, that to pick up the imagery from uh, Ezekiel 36, uh, a, no longer a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh. Through our regeneration, through faith in Christ, we are in the covenant community of God. We are God's people as we are in Christ. So that's the reality. So what, what describes the people of God? He mentions three things. The ones worshiping or serving by the Spirit of God, boasting in Christ Jesus, not putting confidence in the flesh. What do the people of God look like? Number one, we serve, worship, by the Spirit of God. The word he picks up here for, for worship can also be translated service. It means a religious service, a, a devoted religious service to God. And so it's going to not involve simply a, a, a set time of worship, but a, a really a, a life of, of worshipful serving God. This is done not on our own abilities, not according to our own wisdom, but by the Spirit of God. By the Spirit of God who has regenerated us, the Spirit of God who has come to indwell us, the Spirit of God who is the Spirit of adoption, who has made us children of the Father, the Spirit of God who has united us with Christ, the Spirit of God who then has made us alive and who we are instructed to follow as he is, if we live by the Spirit, we are to walk by the Spirit. 
So we follow the leading of the Spirit. We, we worship with the, the, and serve God because the Spirit of God is animating us. He has made us alive, and he is guiding us and leading us in this life of devoted service to God. We live as the people of God under the leading and directing and empowering of the Holy Spirit. Second, he says, boasting in Christ Jesus. Uh, the second thing that characterizes us as the people of God is uh, we are boasting in Christ Jesus. And when we boast in Christ Jesus, this means all of a sudden our eyes are off of ourselves. We're not looking at ourselves anymore. We're not promoting our own agenda. We're not promoting ourselves. We're not trying to get people to look at us and, and be concerned about us. We are focusing our attention on Christ and boasting in Christ. Now, why, why would, what about Christ should we boast in? You can say, well, that's an obvious that's a silly question. The answers are obvious. They, yeah, the answers are obvious. So let's, let's kind of work our way through them. John 1.1 1, 1 and Hebrews 1.2 mentions that he is, the, that all things have come into being through him. He is creator. Now, I can take you to my house and I can show you things that I've made. I've made a patio. I've built, you know, work sheds. I've done my flower beds and uh, even a piece of furniture in my house. I can show you all that kind of stuff. And you might walk away and say, wow, that's uh, you know, he, he used a bunch of power tools and didn't cut off any of his fingers. That's pretty impressive. Um, listen, everything I've ever done, everything I've ever made, I've made with stuff that already existed. There's not a thing I've ever made that I just said, you know what? I think I want a new table. New table, appear. I mean, if I did that, my wife would look at me and said, I thought you were weird enough because you got a degree in math and now you're trying to do this. Uh, Yet, he was able to speak something into existence that did not exist. But it's not just the power that he has to do that, but if you look at the created order, and I won't go through this all, but if you look at the created order and sit, and sit down some time and go through it, uh, just things as simple as uh, the earth's... Uh, the makeup of, of, the, uh, of the land and the sea and the earth and why it has to be just this way to support life. Why the sea has to be salt water and not just fresh water to support life on earth. Why the atmosphere has to be just the way it is. Why we have to be the right distance from the sun. Why we have to have a moon that orbits around us. Why the earth has to be tilted 23 degrees on its axis the way it is. Why it has to rotate on its axis the way it does and revolve around the sun the way it does. Why we are the third planet from the sun, not the ninth that they say is not a planet anymore. Uh, and when, what are the purpose of all these other planets? They're actually there they're actually necessary for life. And where our location in the Milky Way, on and on you can go. When you realize what he has created, this is remarkable. Should we have confidence in someone like that? Absolutely. But here's the thing. He's not only creator, he's the sustainer. All things, uh, Colossians uh, 1.17 and Hebrews 1.3 says, he upholds all things by the word of his power. Now, we have a tendency, and it's not necessarily wrong to talk about certain laws of, of nature that, that govern things and hold things together. We can look at the law of gravity, and, uh, and this is this nice mathematical formula, and it describes things. But listen, what, what is our mathematical formula for gravity? It is simply our ability to put into a mathematical formula the word of his power. Gravity works the way gravity works because he is upholding things by the word of his power. Now, this is a mind blower since, that he, since he is uh, the second person of the Trinity and he is the divine son of God. And while he was incarnate, 
he was still the divine son of God. He was still upholding all things by the word of his power. So including the time he was on a cross holding the wood together, holding those two beams together, holding the, the nails uh, that, were, that were holding him up to the cross, holding that together. Is he worthy of our putting confidence in him and boasting in him? I would say so. How many of us have been able to ever uh, experience the, the fullness of the temptation that Satan can throw at us? He did. Spent 40 days without food in the wilderness. If I go 40 hours without food, I'm about to die. Uh, 40, hour, 40 days in the wilderness, and he experiences a temptation unlike anything I can ever imagine, and he passes the test. I've never passed that test. I couldn't make it. Three weeks ago, we had a, uh, a storm that blew through here with 70-mile-an-hour sustained winds. Did any of you go outside and say, peace, be still? No. What would have happened if you had done that? Well, God's got a sense of humor. He probably would have sent a 90-mile-an-hour blast uh, to knock you over and roll you down the street. Um, but Jesus did that. I remember walking into a hospital room to visit uh, uh, the mother of a, a church family member, and she had died about 10 minutes before I got there. You know, it never dawned on me as they were around the bed and uh, tearing up and crying, it never dawned on me to say, brothers, she's not dead, she's only sleeping, and walk over and grab her by the hand and say, lady, I say to you, get up. Never dawned on me to do that. Jesus did that. We can put confidence in him because of all that he has done and can do. I cannot imagine, we looked at this marvelous passage in chapter two a few weeks ago. I cannot imagine the terror of having to face God in judgment for my, in bearing my own sin. I cannot imagine what he experienced becoming, becoming sin on our behalf. He did that. I think we can trust him. I think we can boast in him. He rose from the dead in victory, having conquered sin and death. He is raised in glory. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. I believe we are justified in boasting in him. If we are walking by the Spirit, if we are boasting in Christ, it leaves no room left for what he mentions thirdly. We put no confidence in the flesh. Confidence in the flesh is what we can achieve apart from Christ and our own, and our own abilities and our own strength. We put no confidence there. Now, he's going to anticipate the way that these Judaizers work, and he's going to... Uh, uh, know that they're going to come at these people and say, well, you really don't understand everything. And so Paul says, look, here's what they're doing. These dogs, evil working mutilators who are not, who are not part of the people of God are not under the, the, the new covenant with, in Christ. These people um, are actually putting their confidence in the flesh. So Paul says, look, I'll tell you what, I'll play their game. I'll play their game on their ball field and I will beat them like a drum. Because if anyone has 
reason to put confidence in the flesh, I do. More so than they do. And so he was, he's going to play this game uh, with them, and so he mentions what his credentials are. And he's gonna mention seven things, uh, four of which have to do with his heritage, three of which have to do with his achievements. If anyone thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day. Uh, number one, his, his parents had him circumcised according to the law on the eighth day as required by, uh, by the Jewish faith to be as part of, a part of the covenant people of God. This is not like the Ishmaelites who experienced this at age 13. This is not like uh, uh, Gentile proselytes who experienced this in adult life. No, from the very beginning of his life, his parents brought him up to be uh, an observer of of the law. He is of the nation of Israel or of the stock of Israel. He is by birth, by heritage, he is an Israelite. He is a full-blooded Israelite. Many of these Judaizers cannot claim this. He is of the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, Benjamin is a respected tribe. This is the only tribe that remained faithful to David uh, after the kingdom split, after the death of Solomon. This is the, the they had the territory in which Jerusalem's uh, sat in which the temple was. Uh, the first king of Israel comes from uh, the tribe of Benjamin, and Paul, or as we knew him before as Saul of Tarsus, was most likely named after that king. So uh, he, is he has got a remarkable heritage. He is a Hebrew of Hebrews. He is a Hebrew son of Hebrew parents. Although he was born in Tarsus in Cilicia, his parents raised him to speak Hebrew. In Aramaic. They raised him in a, in, a, in a home that was faithful to the traditions of Israel. Hebrew was his mother tongue, not Greek. Oh, he could speak Greek, obviously, uh, but Hebrew is his mother tongue. He was educated in Jerusalem. Oh, he is a Hebrew of Hebrews. If they want to try to match his heritage, they are going to fail. They can't come close to matching his heritage. He mentions his achievements. According to the law, a Pharisee. Uh, that sect of the, of the Jewish leadership that sought to not only keep the 600 or so commands of the law of Moses, but the hundreds of oral traditions that were also required uh, of them, they sought to keep these faithfully. So uh, regarding zeal, persecuting the church. As a Pharisee, he saw the threat of Christianity as a threat to uh, his ancestral tradition, and so he attacked, and he attacked with zeal. Interestingly enough, the Judaizers are also attacking the church, but not with the zeal that he had, so he can outdo them even in that, he's not, and he's not proud of this. Uh, regarding the righteousness that is, that is in the law, blameless. He's not claiming sinless perfection. What he is claiming, though, is that he was so meticulous in his observance of the law that if you hold his life up to the standard of the law, anybody's going to look at him and say, that's impressive. We can't find fault with this man. He is blameless. Now, on Tuesday, you're going to find out that he's going to say, oh, this is rubbish, because that's the next passage and that's the next chapel. Um, but he is going to be able to communicate this to the Philippians so that should the Judaizers come, they can say, and they began, well, did Paul tell you about the need to be circumcised? Paul told us about you people. Paul warned us about you. 
and tell me, you tell me your credentials. Well, Paul's credentials are far superior. He knows what he's talking about, and he has been clear that this is not necessary. So y'all can take your teaching and either repent or you can move along elsewhere because we're not buying what you're selling. Now, for us today, there are not many, I don't, I, in the three churches I, that I have served in, uh, I've never had a group of Judaizers come uh, through our church. Um, uh, and uh, Osborne can correct me, I, I served with him for about 14 years, but I don't think that, I don't recall ever in a staff meeting that coming up. But this is not the only way to sabotage the faith. There are a number of other ways to sabotage the faith. We don't like the portrait of Jesus that's pictured here in, that's revealed in the scriptures. So we'll just treat him as though he is a figure of wax and we'll remold him and reshape him to a, an image that we are comfortable with. Okay, you've just created another Jesus who's a myth, an idol, a fairy tale, who is too weak and too ineffective to do anything to transform a life or to bring salvation. So they'll try it that way. The fact that, that we believe a gospel where we are made a part of, of the people of God because of uh, faith alone in Christ alone, apart from any works of righteousness on our part, that seems too simple. We need to be able to do something to be able to contribute something. And so there are plenty more other types of works righteousness approaches that are done. Uh, or even today, approaches that say, well, there's actually nothing that's actually sin. So you don't even need to do that, in which case Jesus didn't even need to come. Um, there are a number of ways to sabotage the faith, but uh, ironically, people inherently know that they're inadequate and that there's something greater than them and they're in desperate need of something that's way beyond them. So how do we respond to the saboteurs today? I think the same way. Number one, we become so enthralled with Jesus that we rejoice and he becomes the object of our joy and because we rejoice in him and focus on him so much that when any other thing comes across, we recognize the ugliness of it and the inadequacy of it and say, no, that doesn't have anything to do with Jesus. I don't want it because we are consumed with the joy of Christ as, our, as the object of our worship. Secondly, we watch out. We watch carefully, very carefully. Uh, rejoicing in Christ doesn't mean we, we, that we take our eyes off of the reality around us. No, we're watching, watching carefully. We're listening carefully. For any, any kind of intrusion that's going to come that's going to, that will take our eyes and our attention and our affection off of Christ. So we watch carefully, still, uh, are very mindful. And we put into practice the reality, we settle the reality that you do not, if you have come to faith in Christ, you do not need anything else. Everything you need for life and godliness, you have been given in Christ Jesus. And so we practice walking by the Spirit. We continually boast in Christ. And you will find uh, so many ways to, to follow the Spirit's lead as you search the Scriptures and pray through the Scriptures and, and, and seek, uh, seek God's guidance as you live your day-to-day -day life. 
as you read the scriptures and, and discover more and more about how remarkable Christ is, and you are consumed with boasting in him, that means that there is no time and no room left to look in the mirror and say, boy, what a good boy am I. We're not going to be able to boast in ourselves because we're too busy walking by the Spirit and boasting in Christ. This is how we, you know, is, is there more, is there more? In some ways, yes, we need to understand the tactics of the enemies. We need to understand uh, the faith that's been handed down to us, and that's why that you are here studying. And it's our responsibility as, as teachers, instructors, to instill that in you and teach you that to you. But rejoice in the Lord. Watch out. Walk by the Spirit of God. Boast in Christ. There's no time left to put confidence in the flesh. Father, I thank you. You once again have made this very simple for us. You haven't required a bunch of mental gymnastics for us. You haven't required us to do the impossible. You have done the impossible. May we be so consumed with how magnificent you are, so joyfully walking by the Spirit of God that we recognize falsehood as soon as we see it, we can avoid it and also avoid being tripped up by worshiping ourselves. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.